0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And we're going to be looking today at chapter 39. It's wonderful to see such a full room today. I don't know if I should chalk that up to the fact that it's toward the end of the summer or the email that I sent out this week about the fact that today's sermon was going to be (laughs) PG-13. It's God's Word, though. If you want to follow along in those red Bibles around you, you can find our passage today on page 33. I encourage you to listen as I read to you from chapter 39 of Genesis. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there the lord was with joseph and he had become he became a very successful man and he was in the house of his egyptian master his master saw that the lord was with him and that the lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands so joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he had him made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to make me laugh. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. Because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to succeed. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would use this story in the life of your servant Joseph, this true story that happened in his life, to teach us, help us to see your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A man, a pastor by the name of Charles Durham, wrote a book in the 1980s on the topic of temptation. And in that book, he tells a story, perhaps somewhat mixed with truth and folklore. Uh, It was a story of several hundred years ago, uh, incidents that took place on the island of Cape Hatteras off the coast of North Carolina. A group of men had started to make their living getting ships off the coast to run aground off the island. These men became known as the wreckers. They would cause a ship to wreck and then they would gather the parts and the cargo of that ship for sale. The way they did it was, at night, they would attach lighted lanterns to the heads of old horses, sometimes referred to as nags, and they would walk the horses up and down, back and forth along the coastline. The ships at sea at night would see the lights off in the distance, thinking, as they saw them going up and down, that they were ships that had found a safe passageway through the shoals. And so the captains would then turn their ships toward the coast to follow those supposed ships running their own ship aground. And then those men, the wreckers, would arrive and they would gather the timber of the ships for houses. They would gather the utensils and the cargo and the money and they would use that. It was quite a thriving business. It's even been said that you can go to Nags Head, North Carolina today and take tour of old houses that have the wood of some of those ships as the timber of them and even some of the furnishings of those homes from the cargo of those some 2,300 ships that ran aground or sank. Now when people hear that story, and again, Probably some truth and some folklore to it, but when people hear that story, they're usually surprised, even somewhat angered, at the wreckers of Nag's Head and the devastation that they could cause to occur. This morning we are talking about something far greater that is a wrecker, not the wrecker of ships. But the wrecker of lives, of families, of marriages, of ministries, of reputations, of careers. We're talking today about the seventh of the deadly sins, the sin of lust. It's a powerful sin with powerful potential consequences when it's given into. In the New Testament, the word that is often used for lust, that shows up a number of times in the New Testament, is the Greek word epithumia. It's this little compound word that means a strong impulse, an over-desire The dictionary understands that sense as well. It gives the definition of lust as an intense, unbridled longing, a craving, a desire for someone or for something. As with the other deadly sins that we've been reflecting on this summer, this idea of lust has the idea of an excessive, disordered desire for something that we want. Now we can certainly lust after many kinds of things. We talked about a lot. We can talk about a lust for money, a lust for power, a lust for reputation. but the Greek word, and certainly in the history of the seven deadly sins, the, the sense here is of sexual lust. I think that's one of the reasons why this sin is so powerful. Because we're talking about a disordered over-desire for something that in in and of itself is good and created by God and given to us for enjoyment and pleasure. The statistics about lust are overwhelming. It's even hard to believe some of them because of how widespread and vast the statistics say that it is. And I'm not going to go over all those statistics this morning. I'm just going to tell you this. My assumption this morning is that almost everybody here... Once they reach a certain age, struggles with lust in some way, in some form, and on some level. We're reminded of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Speaking there about all kinds of sins, of idolatry, but also of lust. And on the one hand, that's quite discouraging, isn't it? This sin wrecks so many people's hearts and lives. But on the other hand, there's also an encouraging aspect to that. You're not alone. You're not the first person. In fact, it goes back quite a ways. And there are many who have gone before us who have overcome it can also say that it's not entirely our fault. We live in a very sexualized culture. What is acceptable and even expected today makes it very difficult to live with battling against the sin of lust. We have access to things that we shouldn't see with extreme ease. But... We are certainly not without fault either. Today what I want us to do is I want us to look at this passage, this true story in the life of Joseph, and to see Joseph and Potiphar's wife and this story as it unfolds in Genesis 39 and see what it might teach us about the sin of lust. And so we'll see how it starts, how it begins, we'll see how it develops, and we'll see some ways that we can lean against it. Before we jump in, just a quick word of context here. If you'll flip back just a couple of chapters to Genesis 37, you'll see there that we're told that Joseph was 17 years of age, a young man. He was much beloved by his father Jacob, so much so that he was considered his favorite. And that caused Joseph's many brothers to hate him for the fact that he was so beloved by his father. It didn't help either that Joseph had a number of dreams that... He shared with his brothers and with his father that really made it seem like Joseph was really, really great in the eyes of the Lord as well. So Joseph's brothers created a scam, a ruse, and sold their brother Joseph into slavery to a man named Potiphar in Egypt, who was an officer of Pharaoh. In chapter 39, in verses 1 through 6, we pick up the rest of the context. We hear that the Lord was with Joseph when he was in Egypt, making him extremely successful in Potiphar's house, putting him in charge of everything, a man who had deep respect and power and privilege. And then we pick up the story in chapter 39 and verse 7, and we see how lust begins. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. It is interesting that the Bible gives us very specific detail here. Joseph was handsome. He was handsome in how he looked, in his appearance, and also in his uh, physique, his his form. And after being in his Position of authority and leadership and power in the house for a while. Rising in respect and success and influence. We read that the boss's wife, and let me just interject here quickly. Nowhere in this passage are we given her name. Isn't that interesting? She's always the master's wife, the boss's wife. She is Potiphar's wife. At that point, Potiphar's wife, Joseph's boss's wife, took notice of him, some of your translations say. The ESV actually says that she cast her eyes on Joseph and I think that's actually a better translation here of the Hebrew words for what is being said. This is not just a passing glance that Potiphar's wife has of Joseph. It's not just that she's noticing his beauty noticing that he is a handsome man it's not even a lingering look the sense here of the hebrew word that was used to describe what she did was that she looked and kept on looking and contemplated she imagined she considered the heart and the mind was and the imagination were captured By Joseph's beauty. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 6, where in that chapter 6 and chapter 7 are worthy of you spending some time this afternoon reading through those chapters. I'll mention them a couple times today, but first in chapter 6, in verses 24 through 28, we get a father who is speaking wisdom to his son about lust and adultery. And the wisdom uh, to keep his son away from those things. And we read things like this. uh, Keeping his son away from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. That he would not desire her beauty in his heart. See, not just looking at her, but not to desire her beauty in his heart. That he not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Capture your thoughts and your imaginations and your heart. Can Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? This is the sense of what we're getting at here when we're told that Potiphar's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. It's not just noticing him, it's not just admiring uh, the beauty of Joseph, which would be a legitimate thing to do. This is going a step further and contemplating and imagining and considering being with this man. That's how lust begins. It's how maybe even easily and, and innocuous It begins in our hearts. But we also see in this passage how lust develops because the look, the contemplation, the the consideration, the imagination leads to a pursuit. It, It wasn't just that she contemplated these things in her heart. She then approached him and specifically invited him to be with her. That's what happens. That's how it develops. The contemplation, the consideration, turns into action, turns into pursuit. The wife was pursuing Joseph. And what she says here, lie with me, are two Hebrew words that are never used in association with marriage. Isn't that interesting? It's very clear, it would have been very clear, not only to Joseph, but also to the Hebrews reading this passage when, after it was written. This was very clear what she was saying. She was very direct, she was very blunt, and she was asking him, inviting him, calling him into something that was clearly outside of God's design and purpose. What I want you to notice here is that sometimes this can happen over a long period of time. After much thought and contemplation, imagining, considering, and then action, then taking the next step. But sometimes it can happen very quickly. And that capturing of our hearts happens fast. We don't know exactly whether it happens slowly or fast here, but it can happen either way. That's one of the ways that it develops. Contemplation leads to pursuit, but notice also that pursuit then leads to a level of persistence. We read in verse 10. After Joseph said no to her, she spoke to to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. This pursuit, when first rebuffed, persists. That's what lust does. As it grabs our hearts more and more. It persists over and over again. Even though Joseph had refused the request. And it gave a strong reasoning why it was wrong. We'll get to that in just a minute. Potiphar's wife persisted. She wouldn't take no for an answer. She wouldn't be deterred. Notice she spoke to Joseph day after day. And then... We read in verse 12 that she directly approached him a second time. Propositioning him once again. One of the commentators that I was reading this week about this passage had, as he got to this part of the passage and her persistence and how she was persisting over and over again, uh, referred to uh, an 18th century English poet, Alexander Pope, and he wrote a he wrote a number of different uh, poems and and essays. And on one of them is called an essay on man. He wrote this this little phrase. Vice, a moral wrong temptation. Vice is a monster of so frightful mean. Mean means appearance. Vice is a monster of so frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet, seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity then embrace. There's truth there in that little pithy statement from Pope. Once contemplated and pursued, lust has the power to persist until it's embraced. Lust unchecked becomes commonplace and it becomes over time easier and easier to give in to it. That Consideration and contemplation leads to a pursuit, and that pursuit leads to persistence. And notice the persistence of Potiphar's wife leads to some planning. Look at verse 11. But one day, when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him. Now, this is a little bit of inference. The text does not specifically say... That Potiphar's wife made sure that the men were in the house. But it's probably the way it happened. Planning, after her pursuit and her persistence, she tried to create an environment that would cause Joseph to be very easily to give in to her. So she made up a scenario. She sent the servants away to be alone with Joseph herself. But notice she didn't send them so far away, so as she wouldn't be able to call upon them if she needed to, which she ended up doing. This shows us that this persistence, as we let lust be cultivated in our hearts, as we begin to pursue it, actually reaching out in our actions and pursuing it and persisting in it over time can lead to us To start creating plans to make it easier and easier for it to happen. And notice those plans are often very devious and deceptive. That's the planning here that she shows us leads to deception, literally deception. We see that in verses 13 through 18. Joseph said no to her once again. This time he didn't just say no to her with his words, but he also said no to her with his actions because he fled He put to flight, literally, is what the word means there. He escaped. The pursuit and the persistence and the planning didn't get Potiphar's wife what she wanted. And so she made up a story. She lied. We read in verse 13 that she realized that she had some evidence because he left behind his cloak. And so she called to the servants that were within earshot. And in verses 14 and 15, we read about how she lied to the men, the servants, and notice in her lie, she completely reversed what actually happened. Blaming on Joseph what she was actually doing to him. And notice too that she uses a racial overtone, referring, him, referring to him as a Hebrew. In verses 16 through 18, she then took the lie one more step, and she lied not just to the servants of the house, but she then told the same story, the same lie to her husband. And I couldn't help but note, as we read in verses 18, in verse 18, as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, how that is in such contrast to the fact that earlier she had lifted up her eyes and put them on Joseph her sin and now she's lifting up her voice to put her sin onto Joseph to get him into trouble it shows us the power of lust that is cultivated and developed but unfulfilled brothers and sisters in Christ it's beginning to show us the danger of letting lust fester and be cultivated in our hearts thinking that it doesn't really matter Notice in this story, the lust that was unfulfilled led to even an anger and a rage such that she accused Joseph of something that he rightly could be executed for. We read in verse 19 that Potiphar, when he heard the story, got angry, understandably. But do take note, the text doesn't tell us who he got angry with. He got angry for sure. And of course, I'm sure that he was, no, he was angry at, at Joseph, but was it possibly the case that he was angry at his wife? Did he suspect her of lying, of attempted infidelity? It's interesting that Potiphar chose not to have Joseph executed. We know that wasn't Potiphar's ultimate doing. It's the Lord at work preserving Joseph. He has great plans for him in the future. But he puts him into prison rather than having him executed, which certainly would have been appropriate given the crime that he was being accused of. But either way, what we see here is the power of lust in Potiphar's wife. It was a drive that she fostered and nurtured, even to the extent of being willing to go under its very control. I suspect most of us in this room know something about this process something that we've contemplated once seen we've put our eyes upon it imagined perhaps considered let that develop something that shouldn't we shouldn't have and then perhaps even taking it to the next step and pursuing And maybe pursuing over time as we persisted in cultivating those imaginations and thoughts and ideas. Maybe even leading to the point where we would plan and scheme and even deceive and be devious in hiding and covering up what's in our hearts and what's in our plans. Even being willing to put ourselves or other people at risk. So what can we do? Where's the help and where's the hope? Well, Joseph is not a perfect person. He's a sinner. We, scriptures show us that. And Joseph is not the ultimate hero of this story, as we're going to see in just a moment. This is not a be like Joseph message. But what can we learn from the way that he handled this particular situation? Several things here that I want us to see as we walk away from this passage, how we can lean against the lust in our hearts and in our lives. Notice the first thing that he did is he said no. He said no and then he fled. He plainly said it in verse 8. Notice he didn't linger in the moment, he didn't start to consider and imagine the invitation. And notice he didn't justify it. Could, could we understand even if Joseph had said, you know, I've had a really tough life already. I've got brothers who have tried to sell me off to this foreign lord and country. And now things are going pretty well. And these aren't even my people. You can almost hear the language that he could use to try to justify it, but that's not what he does. He says no. And notice he gave some good reasons in his response with his word no. In verse 8, in the beginning of verse 9, he says he knew it was wrong because it would hurt others. Potiphar... It would betray the trust that this man had placed in him. Now remember, this is a foreign lord of a foreign country, and yet he's being reminded that he has the trust of this man, and he doesn't want to betray that trust that he has been given. And notice he also says at the end of verse 9, he knew it was wrong not just because it would hurt other people, but also because, he says, it was a sin against God. We'll come back to that in a minute. Notice what he does in verse 10. When approached by her day after day, the, the, the sense of that is that Potiphar's wife's attempts were a barrage at Joseph. This wasn't just one or two invitations. Day after day after day after day, she was coming to him and speaking him, maybe buttering him up. Who knows what she was doing? And notice what he did. He said no, not only in his words, but also his actions. He would not listen to her, lie beside her, or even be with her. He was watching to be careful that he wasn't even in the same place at the same time with her. Because he knew that would be cultivating the imagination of the invitation. And then he's confronted again with her in verse 12. Where she confronts him. And again invites him, perhaps even calls him, and notice what he did. He left his garment in her hand and he fled out of the house. So Joseph, excuse me, not only verbally said no, and said no with his actions by making sure he wasn't in the, right, the wrong place at the wrong time, but he even when he found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time at no fault of his own, physically removed himself from the situation and he did it with haste. He got out of there. You can almost see him running out of the house. This is a good practice to follow. Maybe literally saying no to a person or even to a computer or phone screen. Sometimes we actually need to say no to ourselves rather than those moments when... The temptation is to let lust be cultivated, the imagination to be captured by an idea or a thought or a person or an invitation. Sometimes we might actually need to literally say no to remind ourselves that that's not the right story to be playing in our minds. It's also helpful that we hear Joseph's rationale for why he said no and we need to remind ourselves of these things as well. Saying yes to something like this will certainly hurt other people. A spouse, a sibling, friends, parents, church members, employers, employees. But also remembering that it's a sin against the Lord. It's not simply a sin and and something that could hurt other people. It is something that is wicked In a sin against the Lord, we need to remind ourselves how much is at stake and giving in to what we think might even just be a small thing. And, And with Joseph, we too might need to physically relocate ourselves and get out of a situation that we find ourselves being particularly tempted. That's one of the things we can see from this passage is saying no and fleeing. There's a second thing here and we get at it in verse 9 as Joseph begins to speak to Potiphar's wife and gives some rationale for why this would be wrong to to betray his boss and to sin against the Lord. In verse 9, he points out to her, one of the reasons why it's wrong is because, he says, you are Potiphar's wife. This is reminding us of God's intention. By by pointing out to Potiphar, you are your husband's wife, he's also pointing out, you are not my wife. Joseph understood something about God's intention and purpose for sex. One man, one woman, in the context of a covenant of marriage. Joseph said he knew to give in to the proposal that he was given was a great wickedness and sin against God because it went against God's purpose and intention. So part of what helps us in battling the lust in our hearts and our minds is to remind ourselves regularly that fulfilling and giving in to our lustful desires outside of marriage is against how the Lord has created and knit us to be. It's against the Lord's intention for how we are to flourish and find enjoyment in this life. When sex takes place within the context of marriage, some really great things can happen. It's one of the ways that God brings in children to our families. not the only way, but it's one of the ways that God brings in children into our families. But God also uses the sexual relationship between a man and a woman to create a bond or a seal of unity between two people. Something that is a wonderful blessing in this life. We read in Genesis 2 and then in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that a man will leave his wife and the two will become one flesh. That bond, that seal of unity between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. But God also uses it to give us a foretaste of heaven, a sense of heaven, a sense of our ultimate relationship with him in heaven. I think that's what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 5 when he talks about the husbands and the wives and he talks about their mutual responsibility and love and concern and respect for one another. And he quotes actually from Genesis 2 that a man will leave his his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says there at the end of that section, this is a profound mystery. No kidding, Paul. But I'm speaking about Christ in the church. How amazing is that? that that in some way, through that bond and unity between a man and a wife that God blesses us with, we have a foretaste of Heaven of God's relationship with his people. Every time that we give in to lust and defile God's intention, we keep ourselves from those blessings. There's a third thing that we see here in the passage that helps us to lean against our lust, and that is Joseph being satisfied with the presence and with the steadfast love of our Father in heaven. This is why Joseph isn't the ultimate hero of the story. God is. We read in verses 21 and following, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. There is a whole lot going on in that verse. Notice first, the word Lord is capitalized. As it is earlier in the passage when we read that the Lord was with Joseph. That is, that's special. That's, this is the way that our English translations remind us that the word here for Lord is a very specific name that God gave to his people. It's a special covenant name that he gave to the people that he was in covenant relationship with. And we're being reminded. Uh, It's seven times throughout this passage. The Lord was with Joseph. The people with whom he was in covenant with, he was with them. And, And it goes even further in that same verse in verse 21, because we see it's not just the Lord in all caps. But notice what the Lord showed him. He showed him steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word hesed. It's that special word of God's covenant love for his people. Special covenant love and commitment that God makes between himself and his people that he is faithful to forever, even when his people are not faithful to him. And so, what we're hearing here is that Joseph had a sense of the presence and the power and the promises of the Lord, and that caused him to be able to say, No to even sexual temptation and lust. It meant that at those moments when he was being tempted towards something momentary and temporary and illicit, some kind of immediate satisfaction with Potiphar's wife, the promises of the Lord being with him and the steadfast love being over him meant more to him than the proposition. This is the power of the gospel. Notice it went even further because we read at the end of the passage that it was the presence and the, and the power and the promises of the Lord that enabled Joseph to endure even unjust and unfair imprisonment and punishment. The Lord's love for us should so captivate and capture our hearts and minds that there's no room for lust to gain a foothold. We must... Read the scriptures and tell one another the gospel over and over again so that we have an ever deepening understanding of who God is, how God has contemplated us from before the foundation of the world, how he has pursued us, how he has persisted in his pursuit over and over again, never giving up how He has planned for our redemption and reconciliation, planning for us to be with Him forever in heaven, and how He has brought that to pass by coming Himself into this place and giving His very life for us. To the extent that that will capture our hearts and our minds, we'll have the strength and the power that we need to lean against the passing temptations of the lust of our hearts. Can I just finish with just a couple of very practical potential helps back in Hebrew, or excuse me in Proverbs uh, chapter six and chapter Seven, particularly in chapter Seven, uh, the, the father is continuing to, to talk with his son and give him wisdom. And, and he gives, he paints this very interesting picture in, in Proverbs 7, verses 6 and 7. Just imagine this as I read it to you. Imagine this with what, what this picture that he's painting. Uh, For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. So you see he's in the house. He's looking through the window, through the panes of the window. And he's looking out. The father's looking out. And, and he's seeing something outside on the street. What does he see? And I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths. A young man lacking sense. Looking through the house window out into the street, he sees a young man who is lacking sense. Why does he lack sense? Well, he says, passing along the street near her corner, he's talking about the adulteress, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. It's a reminder to us that even as we think about these internal motivations for why we should love the Lord more than we love the temptation of lust in the moment, that we also have a need to just simply be wise in the situation and not uh, do things or uh, that would put ourselves into a bad spot or to do some things that keep us from being in those bad spots. We read at the end of this chapter that there are devastating consequences because the young man goes on and gives in. And the consequences are quite devastating. So what are some just practical things we can do? If you don't know and if you do struggle with things on your computer, there are some wonderful internet filters that you should have. It should be a non-negotiable in our homes with young children. The average age these days of somebody seeing something they, they shouldn't is 8 to 10. Having something in place before that to help protect is simply wise, let alone having something in place to help spouses that perhaps are individuals that are struggling with looking at things that they shouldn't. If A second thing, if the struggle is real, if the struggle is great and something that is very difficult for you to overcome, you need to tell somebody. You need to... Confide in a friend, perhaps a spouse, pastors, elders. Don't try to walk this line by yourself if there has been no success to this point. And just a third very practical thing is that we need to be aware and thoughtful and careful about where we find ourselves. How we communicate. How we present ourselves. Where even we put our computers in our homes, what we watch, what we read, maybe even something as simple as whether we go to a swimming pool without any other people with us. These are just some small examples of how we need to be careful, how we need to be wise. And there are many other things that we could mention at this point, but I want to underscore the fact that those external things that we put in place won't work and won't be powerful unless you understand these internal things. How we remember God's intention... And how going against that intention robs us of so many blessings. And how we need to be satisfied with the presence and the steadfast love of our Father in heaven first and foremost. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. I can't imagine how Joseph... Uh, or others would feel to know that they have stories about themselves that people in 2018 are reading and trying to learn from. And yet, Father, you have given us your word and inspired it that we might learn more about who you are, learn more about your love for us, your steadfast love for us. Father, I pray that as we meditate on these things, as we think about these things, that you would truly encourage us That you would fill us with a motivation for loving you and following your word. That we would have a true desire to be people of purity in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. We pray that the gospel of your grace and mercy, even as we come to remember it again at the table, would so captivate our hearts and our imaginations that the lust of this world, the lust of even our own hearts would pale in comparison. Would you do this, Father, truly for our good, but most importantly for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.